Campwire is made possible through the generous support of our sponsors. With UltraCamp's registration software, we help take the worry out of registration so your camp can focus on making memories that last a lifetime. UltraCamp, we're with you every step of the way. For pricing and registration solutions, connect with our staff at ultracamp.com today. Joining us, today's edition of Camp Wire is about cultural appropriation at camp and how we need to stop doing harm. And we've got two guests with us today. Uh, first of all, my name is John Beitner. I'm the professional development manager for ACA's Western region. And the two guests that we have today are friends of mine. I'm so excited to be speaking with Yatil Owens, who is the director of Camp Winter Rainbow, and Liz Kimmelman, who directs Tumbleweed Day Camp and Camp Ursa Major. So let's just start off. Uh, Yatil, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Hi, John. I'm so happy to be with both of you this morning. Um, yeah, I am a clinical social worker and I um, live and occupy Ohlone lands in the East Bay. Um, and our camp uh, is up in Northern California and we, are up there in the summertime and those are Kato Wailaki lands. Um, so I always wanna make sure that we're recognizing that we're always on native land. <clears throat> um, so our camp is a circus and performing arts camp and we've been around for 45 years. And through those years, we have worked to use circus and performing arts to talk about really hard issues, um, that could be labeled social justice issues. We don't use that term. We just say we're talking about life and really hard issues and what people are experiencing and going through and how we can be different and how we can change. Um, and cultural appropriation is one of those conversations that we have consistently at camp, so. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. Liz, tell us a little bit about uh, your work. Hi, it's really nice to be with both of y'all this morning and um, thank you for having me on. So yes, I own and direct Tumbleweed Day Camp in Los Angeles, which is on the ancestral land of the Tongva tribe. Um, and I also uh, have directed Camp Ursa Major, which is up in Napa, which I believe is on the ancestral land of the Wapo people. Um, and most of our operation is down here in Los Angeles. And we have been around since 1954. Uh, my husband, Andy, and I have owned it. Um, I think we're coming on our seventh year. Uh, and I have been working at camp for many years on and off. Um, and then I also spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, volunteering for the American Camp Association, for the Western Association of Independent Camps, WAKE, um, as well as uh, some other entities that are both related to summer camp, youth development, as well as uh, early childhood education. Um, and I'm also a mom, I have two kids. Well, and thank you for uh, bridging to the Western Association of Independent Camps, because I know that you're a part of their uh, diversity, equity and inclusion work group. And 
I wanted to know if, you know, that, that kind of bridges to who the audience for this podcast is. Who, uh, who did you and Yatil have in mind when you were thinking about cultural appropriation, the harm that's being done and how camps can, can uh, make adjustments? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think one thing to be just transparent about is both Yatil and I are white women um, and I am a cisgendered white woman. And so it might seem very strange that the two of us are talking about cultural appropriation and, you know, where is our expertise or uh, where where is our authority on this? And something that both her and I, um, at least I know I can speak for myself in this, and I believe that she feels this way as well, feel very um, passionate about the fact that in a system that is built on white supremacy and white privilege, it is the responsibility of folks who are white to do the work in dismantling white supremacy and the system of uh, and, and systemic racism. And so our hope is that the audience here is really anybody that's operating and orchestrating summer camp. Um, and that can be anyone from any background, any culture, any race, any ability, any class, um, and the reason for that is because what we're hoping to get out of this discussion is, is a look into how we can better view the operations that we do, um, the products that we offer, the visuals, even down to the names of the groups at camp in a way that is inclusive and equitable and representative of the people there versus um, taking and using what is not ours or what has not been given to us. Um, so yes, it, it might, uh, it might seem a little odd that you have two white ladies, uh, talking about cultural appropriation and we're hoping to not only speak to the whole camp community, but specifically to, um, other hopeful allies out there in how to really do the work in your space to, to dismantle systemic racism. Excellent, excellent. So that that's a that leads to a great question. Etil, what is Camp Win a Rainbow doing that helps mitigate some of this harm? Um, first of all, we don't think that this is a separate conversation from any of the work that we we do every day. Um, so we always have these glasses on. Like, are we causing harm? Is this policy, you know, in some way causing harm? Is this activity? Is this show that we're putting on? Um, how in the job description are we addressing, um, you know, causing harm um, on a lot of different levels? And so we never say, oh, we did that workshop and we got trained and now we're going to go write a bunch of policies and, you know, or do our show or something like that. Um, our staffing structure is like we hire specific people to have this lens on with the kids, um, with all of our performances. And then we're making sure that we're teaching the history of hip hop um, that, and, uh, and like breakdancing to the original B-Boys where they came out of Brooklyn, I, I believe. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just always there. It's always with us. Excellent, excellent. And uh, Liz, I know that that Tumbleweed at least has been looking at, like its logo has a teepee on it. Um, 
what what is tumbleweed thinking right now with regard to mitigation strategies? Yes, uh, our we are currently in the process of re of redoing our logo and our branding. But bigger than that, um, for many years we've been having discussions around. Uh, everything to do with the names of our groups, to the signage, to traditions and cultures, to stories we tell, to location places. Um, Tumbleweed was, uh, was founded in the 50s in Hollywood during the height of the, the cowboys and Indian romanticized West. And like many other things that came out of that, it uh, took on a lot of um, pan-tribal indigenous iconography and lingo, um, things like using the term powwow for a meeting space or um, having group names as tribal names um, or indigenous people's names. Um, and so we are in the process, and this is kind of the one of the last iterations of this transformation to, uh, to De, um, de-appropriate a lot of the things that we had. So as you mentioned, our logo for the longest time was a teepee. Um, and again, it came from that idea that, you know, it's the wild west. Um, and so part of our process has not only been coming up with a new logo that more appropriately represents who we are and also does not take from a people that, we don't have a connection with that we were never given this image to use. This is not, um, this is actually also not even a, a home that the people that whose land that we occupy would even use the, the Tongva and the Shumash people, uh, historically their ancestors used, uh, wiki apps, which are rounded, um, woven structures. They're not TPs. So even from a historical standpoint, it wasn't accurate. Um, so we're working on that as well as we have changed the names of our groups. Our groups um, for older campers did used to be indigenous people names. Um, so we changed those names. We changed the location places. We removed a lot of the imagery that was associated with, um, again, kind of tr pan-tribal um, iconography. And in doing so, it wasn't that we just erased any of this indigenous imagery and, and lingo, we then also have been working on connecting with our local tribes of the Tongva, the Tongva Gabrielino and the Shumash to the north to make connections with them so that we can better represent the land on which we're on. So, you know, and I think as we get into this and we talk a little bit more about it, looking at your site and looking at your location and thinking about the usage, whether it be a teepee or whether it be doing hip hop dancing, it's not just about removing it so that you are not taking from someone. It is also about better educating your community so that you can continue to uplift those voices. And I think that's something that often gets lost in the discussion around cultural appropriation and deappropriating your space. Yeah. Um, because if we're just erasing the imagery and the lingo, then that, that's continuing to do harm. I agree. I agree. And uh, Yatil, we have the pleasure of seeing each other 
on video and I see you nodding a lot as, <laughs> as, as Liz is speaking. And I think that is a great mitigation, mitigation strategy is not to divorce ourselves completely of every cultural reference in the world, but to acknowledge its origin and mm -hmm. to, uh, to really celebrate uh, these gifts of, of culture that we've, we've uh, been given from around the world. Um, but I, I think it would also be good to, to kind of go back and foundationally just talk about cultural appropriation. How do you define it? What, what would you say to someone who said, you know, we're thinking about this, um, we, we feel like cultural appropriation is a mistake that we're making, we want to do better at it. What definition would you give them just as, as the foundation? Yeah, there's a lot of definitions and a lot of ways to look at cultural appropriation. And so um, for Camp Winter Rainbow, we use a definition that was um, written by a woman named uh, Maisha Johnson. And she says that cultural appropriation refers to a particular power dynamic in which members from a privileged culture, white people, me, um, take elements from a culture of people who have been systemically oppressed by that privileged group. Um, and I like this definition because other definitions are like, well, just don't wear other people's clothes or don't, you know, don't wear a headdress. And, but it doesn't talk about harm or why it, it can be harmful. Um, and so the key element of it being a power dynamic it's, it's kind of like this definition to me is a, a way to start looking at camp and start looking at the work that we're doing and and it puts it kind of in a box instead of just so free floating and we don't know where to land with what. Um, because, you know, our, we sleep in teepees and we're in Northern California. Um, and the reason we sleep in teepees is because we rent the property and the property owners put up teepees for instead of cabins. That's just what they do. Um, and so we need to recognize that and, and stand there and listen if someone is feeling a lot of feelings about it. Um, and yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> so so I think I, the, the thing that I would appreciate as a participant in your camp is if I got to sleep in a teepee, first of all, as a child, I think, I think I would really think that was cool. Then if I was studying the Plains natives um, and they said, you know, it was a temporary home that could be moved from place to place following herds of animals, you know, my understanding I think would be greater than the person sitting next to me who may not have slept in a teepee for whatever reason. Um, so your camp's approach to explaining the history and explaining the ingenious qualities of this structure, I think is a way to honor that invention. Yeah. Yeah, so. I agree. And I guess that's the part that I left out is that we, I was given, I was fortunate enough to be given a story about the lodge um, from a Lakota elder that I know. Um, and I, because I asked my friend, like, what do you think about us sleeping in teepees? Because they're my friend. Um, 
And that, I think that's a, an important point that I wanted to say uh, when Liz was speaking is that um, we need to be really careful about um, how much we ask of our the tribal people that are around us. Like it's not their job to figure out if we're culturally appropriating something from them or to even share anything with us. Um, and so if you do get a person, a native person that is, you know, that you can, you're friends with or they, and they do share with you openly and help guide you, then that's a gift. Um, so it, don't just like go to a tribal office first thing and start asking a bunch of questions because it's not their job. That's our job to figure stuff out. Um, so it's super tricky. I don't know if you agree with me, Liz, but that's like. Yeah, and I should also mention too that when I was talking about the that like both the uplifting, the removal of incorrect and appropriated iconography and lingo and visuals coupled with the uplifting of voices of the people whose land that we're on. I forgot to mention too that we used to prior to the pandemic, we used to have school groups come on to camp and we would do some very basic um, outdoor education that was centered around the historical use of the land. And so we would talk about how the ancestors of the Tongva and Chumash people, how they use the land, the native plants and animals, their cultural setup. And so part of part of our work in making sure that we were appropriately representing and, um, and, and being allowed to teach this information was connecting with those groups as well. Um, but I agree. It's, you know, if you're at your camp and you're, and I think we can talk about this in a little bit too, but if you're looking around and you're like, huh, we have a totem pole here and we're in Glendale, um, you know, your first reaction isn't to reach out to the to the local indigenous tribe or the local native peoples group. Your first reaction should be to start to Google and start to do the work in, in researching yourself and figuring that out. Um, yeah, I I agree. Then I think I think that also gets back to the very the first thing that we said at the top of the show was that um, part of the reason why you and I are here talking about this is so that we can hopefully uh, we can hopefully encourage other folk that are in a similar position of privilege to do the work and the research and the learning yourself. And, you know, Google is an amazing thing. <laughs> the internet is an amazing thing. Um, and you should be using that versus taxing and, and using the time of folks in in these positions um to to educate you um yeah so absolutely That's yeah advice. um and so we on the first night um of every session I tell the story I do a land acknowledgement with the with the kids and talk about what that means and then I tell the um story that I was given about the TP. and then um we have we have some connections with the Katawailaki tribe. Um, and I made those connections by trying to get their kids to come to camp, <laughs> um, uh, you know, offering. And so 
that the the summer that we couldn't run was going to be the summer that they were going to cut like they were going to bring their dance troupe so hopefully like that type of stuff will happen um and then the last thing i wanted to say um is we always ask ourselves can you tell the story about this when because we have a totem pole <laughs> and it's out in the middle of our sports field which i don't know why um <laughs> other than it's beautiful, but we can tell the story because it was carved by a landowner who worked with a traditional um, uh, Alaskan man to, and taught him how to do the totem pole and gave him permission to do it for that piece of land right there. And so we can tell the story of that um, and how it was gifted to the land where we are on um, by a traditional person, so. Campwire is made possible through the generous support of our sponsors. CampBrain is an intuitive and complete camp software package built with care and you, the camp pro in mind. They take pride in building long lasting relationships through their amazing support and love that they show to each client. CampBrain is not only focused on your needs for summer 2021, but for the next 25 years. For more information, visit them at campbrain.com. This is excellent. And I think it's good advice to any camp director is to like know what you're doing and why you're doing it. You know, um, some of our greatest minds in, in camping will say, really examine your program and figure out what everything is and why you're doing it. Um, we talked a little bit about dance. We've talked a little bit about Native American iconography and, and nomenclature and things. What are some other examples of culture broadly that camps may be appropriating, um, you know, in your, in your own camps that you're, you're divesting from or that camps generally do, you know, at the talent show or, or things like that? What do you, what comes to mind when you think of those other examples? I was going to say, I think in just backing up in this, because it's, as we start to go down this road of, what should we be examining and how should we be examining it? It's also important to remember that part of doing this work and examining the potential harm or limiting access involves some amount of finances as well. So one of the first things that came to my mind um, was your, your dining hall and your food setup. Like, are you having, you know, are, are you, serving tacos and calling it Mexican night? Are you serving food and yeah. placing it in a culture, um, one that might not even be part of that culture and is kind of like a whitewashed version of it. And so then when you're starting to think like, okay, well, now I need to redo my menu or we need to be better at serving a more diverse plate of food that costs money. Um, and so I think a lot of these things that we're looking at is, you know, keeping in mind to, to the folks that are listening that there are many different levels in which we can approach this from. And I hope that we are encouraging folks to assess and analyze and get creative with different offerings and not just, you need to throw everything away and spend a ton of money to revamp your, your talent show, your, your signage, your dining hall, your menu, your sleeping arrangements, all these things. 
Um, and so just kind of keeping that in mind, but that was when you were mentioning what are some of these other areas to look into, I think food is a big one. Um, and food can be an amazing avenue to deliver and appreciate culture as well. I think mm -hmm. between music and dance and food, it can be one of the universal ways that we can educate each other on cultural history and differences and, and um, celebrations. Um, yeah. So that was one of the things that came to my mind. Um, the other thing that came to my mind was the costume cabinet or we have a costume barn. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> it's actually a tent, but we call it a barn. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, curating your costumes very carefully, um, which doesn't mean taking everything out uh, that is referencing a specific culture, like a sombrero. Um, because what if you have a kid from Mexico come to your camp and they want to wear a sombrero at, you know, and on stage. Great. Awesome. Um, we, we have had instances where kids have done their own makeup and come out with essentially blackface. Um, so yeah, just be in there with them um, too and helping them. Um, but then don't, so what we had to do was um, gently help them wash their face and change it into a superhero face, which is kind of what they were wanting anyway. But we did, we used the opportunity to talk to them about what is blackface? What is the history of blackface? How is it extremely harmful? Um, and in no way should we ever do that as, as white people or, you know, as any person. Um, I let, so that we had, one of the kids was Af uh, black and he came out with blackface. So I was like, I don't really know. Like we still <laughs> talked with him and stuff, but I was like, can you guys help me think this through? Cause I don't, like, yeah. Those kind of conversations are, are hard. And that's why if your team is trained to all be thinking about this, you can then all talk about it in the moment. ActiveWorks Camp and Class Manager is the leading all-in-one software solution for your camp, whether it's in-person, online, or somewhere in between. Manage your camp with secure, easy-to-use software and give families the freedom to register online from any mobile or desktop device. Fill your camp to capacity every season with feature-rich built-in marketing tools. ActiveWorks Camp and Class Manager, innovation with you in mind. That's, that's great. So when you think about that training and when you think about your stakeholders and your, your long-range goals and things like that, what is the first step in evaluating your camp's program for elements of cultural appropriation? Where do you begin? For us, it was um, deciding on what cultural appropriation is, like agreeing, because it is such a broad topic. And then how does it fit in with our philosophy um, and who we want to be? And then how does it affect our work? Um, and to just have a lot of conversations. Um, and I will tell you, it took it took like a few years to come to a place where we were all 
using this language and looking at things and it was actually embedded into our policies more and um, it hadn't been before I uh, became director. Um, even though it was a value, I don't, I didn't really see it be talked about that much in our everyday work. So, but it took some years. I'd say we're like 11 years into it. One thing that I would pair that with as well, and this is coming from, I think, you know, we're, we're definitely a few years behind where Camp Winter Rainbow is um, in terms of getting to a place where it's the, it's the, it's the community language that's all on the same page that every member, camper, staff member, and uh, stakeholder is on the same page that as a community, these are agreements, these are norms that we have that are based in anti-bias, anti-racist practices. Um, and so we're definitely, you know, years behind you. And I think part of part of what we're part of what I'm realizing in this moment is also pairing not only the conversations that you're having as an executive team or with your um, with your investors or with your board around these these definitions and, and viewing and belief systems, but it's also expanding your education and the individual education of the people on those teams. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think uh, we could probably <laughs> just rattle off a whole bunch of um, resources and maybe that's something that we can, you know, kind of put together to have available to folks that are listening, but really just like, low hanging fruit of books and TED talks and videos, um, articles that are out there that are going to help to continually reshape the way that you view the world. And I think the more you and your executive team can, can continue to consume a wide variety of education around anti-racist and anti-bias youth development, the more you're going to be able to step into this space of um, viewing your camp through that lens. Um, and so kind of, you know, on the, on the front end of even having the conversations, supporting your team and getting educated, um, and then, and then going into some of those uh, specific discussions. Yeah. That we ask our staff, to if you're going to be hired here, be prepared to do do the work for yourself, um, and have it be something that you're thinking about, you know, in all the things that you're doing. Um, and it's hard sometimes, but it's meant to be hard because white supremacy is terrible. <laughs> I mean, we have to dismantle it. It has to stop. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's pervasive and it's, uh, it's, you know, got deep, deep tendrils into everything that's going on. Um, so TED Talks, excellent. Researching cultural appropriation on your own with your team, excellent. Examining what we're doing at camp and why and, and finding out more about uh, things, things that we've just taken for granted that, you know, well, we've always had this thing here, or we've always called that this name. Um, any other resources that come to mind 
for a listener who wants to just jumpstart? Um, one of the things that I've been reviewing and, and um, have only gotten into the very early stages of it is a action plan from the KCE, oh man. Foundation. Yeah, the, the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Thank yeah. you. Um, and it lays out a an action plan for how to address race and equity in a workspace or in a education environment, I think specifically. And I can definitely pass along that, that document, but it has seven different steps that organizations can take. And I think what's really helpful with that is it helps to pinpoint the starting place, yeah. right? That, you know, I think folks that are listening to this might be starting to look around their office or look around their camp or think about spaces at camp and see those overt um, racist objects um, and, and want to dive in kind of in the middle. Um, but this really helps to settle you down in your planning on um, how to start to dismantle systemic uh, oppression at camp. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be, so step one, I would say, talk, talking to your team about like, let's do this work together. This is what the kind of culture we want to create at camp. And then step two would be to find a good program, program evaluation tool, like the tool that you're talking about, Liz. Um, I didn't find that tool until you emailed it to me. I wish I had because I created a tool. <laughs> and that that is an amazing tool that thought of things that I didn't even think about. So um, so they're so out So is there. it easy to find if I went to the Annie E.K. Safe Foundation and mm -hmm. put in cultural appropriation or anti-racism or what is it? Let me, uh, yeah. Okay. So if there's a couple of tools that they have on their website, um, it's called the... Um, racial equity and inclusion framework tool. And so if you look at race equity and inclusion action guide, uh, it is a 16 page multi-step program that will at least help to start formulating what a plan might look like at your camp. That's great. Um, so yeah, again, it's the race equity and inclusion action guide from That's the great. Annie E. Casey Foundation. So we've been talking about, we need to do the work ourselves. We need to uh, hire staff that are willing to do the work. Let this be a big part of their training, not just safety procedures around, you know, the ropes course. Um, who else do we need to include in the process? Alumni. Okay. Tell me, tell us more about that. Um, so when you try to change things at camp, I know neither of you have <laughs> ever had this experience before, <laughs> that are the most beloved, um, like names of things or names of areas. I We always have an outdoor living room at camp. And in 2018, I moved it to another grove and oh my gosh. <laughs> Finally, they, they started to like it and they made me a t-shirt that said, I moved the living room. But <laughs> um, so while, while my staff and team and campers and everybody is in the process with me and hearing the conversations that we're having and, 
you know, questioning ourselves, alumni feel like this sense of ownership because they grew up at camp. This is their camp. And we want them to feel that sense of ownership and being part of the community, but they're not part of the process unless you bring them in to the process. And so I've had like, you know, six hour workshops on a week weekend at a groovy place in Berkeley and invited staff and fed them and had this kind of conversation and brought up like different areas and stuff like that. And just, and then it, you know, trickles out. So that would be my answer. And uh, we have a board of directors too. So um, I, I always want to include them. A big part of this work for us at Tumbleweed has been educating and creating a space for our campers in which we can support them and eventually doing the work to dismantle systemic racism. And I think for those of you that don't know a lot about Tumbleweed, we're located on the west side of Los Angeles. We are, our campers, the vast majority come, of them come from very privileged, very well-off homes. And so a big part of our philosophy is if these are the kids that are set up to be in positions of leadership, be CEOs, be um, be change makers, then I want them to be making the change of dismantling white supremacy. And so for us, part of the conversation is not just how to train our staff, how to have how to have belief systems, how to communicate this to our parents, but it's also how to have these conversations with our campers as young as four years old. Um, and so that is part, that's something too that we've been working on um, is developing both um, like structures of, of how to have conversations, um, when to have conversations about equity and inclusion, um, and then also too, to make it a place where they, for some of our older campers or really any of our campers, they can bring up these conversations and they feel like they are in a safe space to have questions and to talk about this. Um, because if, if, the, if the goal is to support them in, and to hopefully have a future in which more people are on board with less white supremacy, then we have to start with them. They are going to be the ones that are implementing these systems later on um, or dismantling them. Um, and so that's been a, a big, even like a programmatic change for us. Um, something I, I know that had been really helpful in that in trying to work on a plan was um, ACA had put out a webinar about race discussions at camp with teaching matters uh, and um, and ACA, and I'm blanking on the gentleman's name, um, but there there's a little plug for ACA professional development for you. Um, <laughs> and it was on race discussions at <laughs> camp. Um, good, the really excellent point. The, if you don't know anything about Camp Winter Rainbow, our mission or our like philosophy um, because mission is a colonized term. So I changed it. We don't call it mission anymore. We call it philosophy. Um, is leads us to um, try and bring as broad, uh, diverse campers and staff to camp. Um, 
and that has been since we we were founded by Wavy Gravy and Johanra 45 years ago. Um, and so we seek that out and we, um, we try and create, you know, ways to be having these conversations together. And we don't all come from the same background. Like that's a thing to really be paying attention to. Um, and we have caused harm um, by having a diverse group community and not paying attention to how the any conversation is affecting someone else because if it all comes from a white point of view and you're you're speaking even staff training like i have if i have you know 10 people of color in my training session <clears throat> like how am i centering their voice but not relying on them to be to be educating us and then what am I saying, you know, and, and it's, it's a skill that I constantly am trying to work on and think about. Um, Cause I don't live it. Like I, I don't live what my staff member Osayande does every day as a black man. Um, and so it's, I'm lucky that he tells me things <laughs> like he shares with me. I'm, extremely lucky that I have that voice to push me like um, after the <clears throat> terrible violence and murders of, of this past year um, he said what are we doing what's like a physical concrete thing that we're doing to change this world Yatil and that was a very important question to be asked um, so I don't know if that makes sense. I, it makes I, sense. It makes sense. And it's, uh, you know, you can tell him while I was on this podcast, uh, <laughs> he uh, knows. Which, you know, <laughs> which helps. Um, so yeah. What are the next steps? What are, so we've got some uh, ways to, to educate ourselves. Um, we've begun some conversations with critical staff, uh, training up all staff, other stakeholders, what, what have you been doing? What are you learning as you go with your next steps? Silence. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, I think one, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say in, in reflecting on this past conversation and just one thing that I always have to keep in mind is that kind of getting back to what your staff member was saying, like, what, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing on a daily basis to dismantle systemic racism? And I think oftentimes folks that are maybe listening into this call or that are, camp can be a very small, isolating place where, you know, you're only concerned with your immediate community. And I think for me, part of doing this work and making sure that it is branching out, not just past my desk, but, but past my camp is that it does not matter how small my platform is. It does not matter how small my community is. I, I need to show up every day and be assessing my, my work around me. Um, and I think that that goes for a lot of camps out there too, that are thinking like, 
oh, this, you know, this doesn't really affect me or we're so small or what I do at camp doesn't matter. And, and we all have to remember that what we do matters an incredible amount, mainly because for the vast majority of us, we're working with children. And if you want to ensure that your campers are not going to grow up and be the future versions of the folks that stormed the Capitol two weeks ago, then you need to be having these conversations and you need to be setting this up. Even if you only have 20 kids showing up at camp, even if they're all of a similar community, the work that you do on a very small level will have great impacts. And so I think for me, it's remembering that it, it doesn't matter who, you know, if I'm have splashy Instagram posts, or if I'm, you know, if I feel like I'm talking to a very small group of five staff, every, everything that I try to do, I'm moving towards a more just future, even if it's in such a small bubble as my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, our founder, Johanna, uh, tells us that her vision for Camp One Rainbow was to make sure that kids who come from great wealth to, you know, kids that don't come from great wealth and all the kids in between um, from all different backgrounds and cultures and um, would come together and have a place to play and talk and eat and meet each other and have caring adults around them that is paying attention um, and interacting with them and help helping them have hard conversations. Um, and once you get a chance as a kid to do that um, in a place where adults are creating space um, thought, thoughtfully, then a person you may see as other isn't anymore. And so, recognizing the importance of this work the key thing is having caring loving adults around that are helping um because we racism comes into camp like all the time it's not just our structures like we're socialized to be racist and so it is going to be coming into camp with kids and um and then how and and you don't even realize it um sometimes i like microaggressions are really hard for me to recognize in the moment. Um, But anyway, I'm going down a path. But I I think for me, next steps are always go back to your program evaluation. Once you've finished it and implemented some stuff, go back and do another one. (laughs) Um, Or just keep doing it all the time um, as you're creating new policies and stuff like that. Have a set of questions that you put it through. But you, yeah, and I appreciate that. And you've you've both brought up such an important group, which is the participants, which is the kids. So uh, put on your your difficult question hats because here I come with it, um, <laughs> and it's a two parter. So how are the participants responding to some of these changes? If you're making changes to some of these conversations uh, on how to be more inclusive and things like that. And part two is, how are you responding, if, if parents are even doing this, are you, are you getting any pushback from parents who say, 
I just want my child to go to camp and have fun. I don't want my sixth grader or my six-year-old, I should say, uh, learning about racism. It's beyond a six-year-old's capacity. You know, let's not let's not stress them out with our adult problems. What? How are your participants doing? Are you getting any? You know, how are parents responding to some of these changes in conversations? <laughs> um, so being a resident camp, um, we just ran day camp for the very first time ever this past summer. Um, and so I anticipate getting more parent conversation around the stuff that we're doing on the daily. Um, but since we've been doing this for a really long time and, and uh, parents are supportive um, of how we go about things. Um, and there's been there have been parents that have called me up and said, my daughter is, has experienced racism in her teepee. They she wrote me a letter. Um, so it's not like we catch everything. And so sometimes parent kids will tell parents and then parents tell us, and then we, um, implemented, um, restorative circles. So we have a really, um, beautiful program that um, really holds kids through hard conversations or if they did do something racist or aggressive or something um, we call in instead of call out and the, the staff is all trained on that um, and we've developed that for uh, like five or six years now and then we do things like um, radio 1111 afternoon and we have different panels of um, all different people and the kids come and they um, bring knitting or you know eat and then they eat popcorn and drink lemonade and it's a radio show and then there's a little dance party and um, and so and we talk about Black Lives Matter or the history of the Black Panthers, or you know, or different um, staff members sh share their story, um, and so the, like we've just created ways, um, and we have an All Nations Day, which is a full day pageant. Um, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, that's, John. That's helpful. And Liz, I'm going to ask you those same questions, but before we do, Yatil, what are the age ranges for your resident camp delivery and your day camp delivery? So seven to 14 and then 15 to um, 17 are, are teen leaders. So the youngest person that would be involved in these conversations is a second grader, mm -hmm. yes. is a reader. And your program has a goal of attracting people from diverse backgrounds. Yes. So you get, you get more of a mixture than many camps might, for example. Um, we try. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, thank you. That helps kind of frame some of those things. And I think we're gonna have to have a separate podcast just on restorative circles. Um, I know that a lot of listeners are Googling that and, and considering that that's something we might consider. Um, but, but Liz, let's talk about the participants. Um, how are they responding to changes? How are they responding to conversations? Are you getting any pushback from parents? Are you getting buy-in from parents? What are you getting? Uh, yeah, so I think the most um, the most like obvious changes that were made were some visual ones. Or so, for instance, only this past summer we changed the names of our groups, and it was like nothing ever happened. We were all prepped for this big, you know, uproar of of you know the oldest campers were were supposed to be in this named group, and now they're 
in now they're in this other named group and they like couldn't care less. So, um, so that was good. But part of that was part of that was having like was preempting it with discussions around why we're not calling our groups by native native names anymore. And I, and I would say native American, but some of them were like the Maya who are an entire civilization. So I digress with that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think for some of these things that I think we were expecting to have a little bit of backlash because it had been a really long time. Um, so whether it's with the logo, um, right now, if you go on our website or you go on the our Instagram page, there's like an in-between logo. It's not really our logo and nobody's even commented on that. So um, there's not a ton of, there's there wasn't really any pushback on that. Um, and from our staff, we got a lot of positive feedback. They were, you know, once we, once we were transparent about the fact that we're making these changes and we've actually been talking about this for a long time. They were like, Oh my gosh. And, and you're getting a new logo and, and are we going to do this? And can we do this? Yeah. So that's been really great. They, it has opened up the ability for them to feel like they can communicate with that more when it comes to the campers. Um, this past fall, we had a really wonderful afternoon in-person program where we tried to supplement some of their like camp activities with extracurricular activities that they wouldn't have gotten from Zoom school. So we did art and music and we did um, outdoor living skills and I led a little bit of a civics class. And so we did some very direct education with that around um, both current events, um, Black Lives Matter specifically. We also talked about um, indigenous people and the indigenous people's history of California. And then we also talked about um, the election and um, the current event in November. And so we kind of focused each one. And one thing that we made um, that was consistent throughout all of those discussions because they were very direct and this wasn't just about reflections. It was a, an item that we were teaching and then an action item to pair with it, even for our four-year-olds, we did this. Um, but with all of those discussions, they were preempted with community norms and also mindfulness activities. So breathing and mindfulness is a big part of what we do at camp and, and we're trying to implement that more, but being able to give campers tools to use to regulate their response and their emotion and to feel safe was really important for us in these discussions. Um, and so that was a big part of what we did and, and they all really like it. And um, some of them are, are really used to it. They maybe do it at school or they do it with their parents. And so what we were finding was nothing was like new or shocking to them. Um, they were all very pretty much aware of, of what we were doing, whether it was the mindfulness and breathing or discussing, discussing um, Black Lives Matter philosophies. They, they all had some kind of awareness to it. I think that speaks to their, I think the, the, the structure of our community that it's, I think parents are trying to do some education. And so we're trying to supplement it on the back end. Um, and while we didn't have any parents, um, whether it was with blog posts or Instagram posts or things that we were doing at camp, we didn't have any parents that were 
um, questioning our motives. We also didn't really have a lot of, like a lot of parents were really great cheerleaders, um, which is great. Uh, and uh, if any of them are going to listen to this, I encourage you to, you know, come and join. We have a parent discussion group that we tried to get going earlier this year, um, an advisory group. Uh, but yeah, they are definitely on a, the cheerleading side, which is understandable as many of them are trying to be parents and teachers and work from home and like their spouses, uh, therapists. So. Such an interesting confluence of, of all these things happening at the same time. Yeah. Well, we're almost at time. So I wanted to give you each an opportunity to share your last main takeaway that you would like a listener to have or your last piece of advice for people who are about to start this work. What, what, would, you, what would you send them off with uh, in our last moments together? Ooh, pressure. Um, something sparked for me, Liz, when you were talking that I could leave everyone with, but we could also talk for 10 more days, um, (laughs) um, is that my staff who are 18 to 30 are my greatest resources. Um, and I saw this meme. So I just turned 50. Um, and (laughs) in November and, and I'm exploring that. Um, and so I saw this meme that says, if you are over 30 and you don't have a mentor that's in their twenties, then you are doing something wrong. Like you need a mentor, um, which is the opposite of like what my generation was taught that the elders are wise and you should always listen to them. Um, but I think it's really true. And so when we when I bring up to make these kind of changes or have these kind of conversations, they're like, Oh, finally. Oh my God. <laughs> so anyway, that would be my thing. Yeah. Big pressure here. Um, you know, I think something that I would love, I, I just hope that from this discussion and, and even just deciding to click on this session and being involved. I really want to encourage folks out there that you can do this. You can do it with great support of your community. I I will speak for myself, but I I know that Yatil and many other folk, especially in Wake, feel the same way. We are here to help you. I will hold your hand through some of these hard discussions because it is worth it. Yes. To, To... dive deep into this and to make summer camp as an institution a safer space with more access and inclusion is is such a dream that we can live up to but we really all need to get on board um and so you know my big my big thing would just be you know for everyone listening not only do your reading and watch the important things and listen to the great podcast, but also like call up another camp director friend and just like say what's on your mind, start to connect with people. Um, I think we're only really going to be able to, to turn this ship if we start to connect with people together. Um, And then the only other thing too, that I would just leave with is that very often folks in camp do feel like we are in these bubbles, these, these safer spaces. And um, in prepping for this podcast, I was looking through some like notes and stuff I had and I, and I saw this one 
meme I saved on Instagram that said that racism is not the shark. It is the water. Yeah. And so it is all around us. Um, and so it is, it is up to us to see through that and to identify that it is not going to stay out of your camp. And so it is there. Camp is just a microcosm of the greater community. Um, and so the things that work outside of camp will work in camp and vice versa. And so just really like hoping to inspire folks to, to dive in. Yeah. And you will make mistakes and there'll be things that you like, that you're going to need to look at personally. Um, and it'll, yeah, but that's, that's it. It's fine. Make a mistake, learn from it and keep moving forward. Yeah. And I want to say too, that, you know, email me and like Liz and I just hop on and, and John too, we hop on and have these kind of conversations for, and we decided to like record this one, but we have these conversations all the time. Um, well, thanks for, for, the, for opening that up. What, what is it, what is a way that our listeners can connect with you? So you two, what, how can they reach out to you? Um, you can go to the website and click on the contact sheet and it'll come to me. So and then rainbow. Yeah. So camp win a rainbow. Dot uh, O-R-G. Dot O-R-G. And you'll be able to connect with you, Teal. Liz, what's a good way for people to connect with you? Folks can email me at Liz at tumbleweedcamp.com. And also I have a, an aspiring blog um, on tumbleweed, which is um, at tumbleweed.com slash blog. Um, so you can also check that out as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you both for being so generous with uh, your experience and your, your hopes and dreams for what camp can accomplish. It's always fun to speak with you. And I appreciate you carving out time for today's Camp Wire. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Liz.